Well, welcome to the Michelle Miao Show. If you're here for the first time, the Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. <laughs> Our special guest tonight is the founder of the Free Radicals Project, a global network of former extremists who work on de-radicalizing others trying to leave the movement by providing counseling. He's an Emmy Award-winning producer, a proud father of two, a husband, and an author, and here to talk about his new book, Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism, is Christian Picciolini. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah. Uh So you're, this book, and it's your second book, and uh, wow, um, I flew through the 200 plus pages so quick, like a, a hungry child, you know, after school, um, uh, and, and, and it because I was just craving for some of this truth. But before we dive into all these truths, the book does share stories from other individuals that you encounter, whether direct or indirect, and through your work. Uh, I think that we should start with telling your story and how that encounter with Clark Martell um, led you to the Chicago area skinheads and, and America's first organized neo-Nazi group. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a it's a privilege to be here and, and an honor, but it's a privilege because I know that oftentimes uh, people that don't uh, look like me, who have a darker skin color, sometimes don't get the same second chances that I do. Um, so I want to acknowledge that. Um, you know, I was born on the south side of Chicago uh, to Italian immigrant parents uh, who worked very, very hard. Uh, and growing up, I didn't see them very often. Uh, they were working seven days a week, 14 hours a day. So I grew up kind of isolated from them. Um, and was really searching for a sense of identity, community, and purpose, I think like most of us do. Um, and I found it in an alley in 1987 uh, while I was smoking a joint, and uh, Clark Martell, the man who recruited me, walked up to me, pulled a joint from my mouth, he looked me in the eyes, and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. Uh, I have to be honest, at 14 I didn't know what a communist was, I didn't... No, if I'd met a Jewish person, I definitely didn't know what the word docile meant. Uh, <laughs> but it was the it was the first time that I felt somebody really saw me um, and really drew me in. Uh, and I didn't know it at that time, but uh, I had just been recruited at 14 years old uh, to America's first neo-Nazi skinhead group. And Clark Martell, the man who recruited me, was America's first neo-Nazi skinhead leader. Um, and uh, although it didn't sit with me in my DNA, I wasn't raised as a racist. My parents were immigrants in the 60s who came over from Italy, and they were often the victims of prejudice. Uh, so it wasn't part of uh, how I was raised. Um, so it was pretty foreign to me, but I was willing to swallow the things that I didn't understand, didn't agree with, because the reward that I was getting was this kind of sense of agency, this... Um, really this kind of brotherhood, this this community that I had joined that I was lacking. Uh, and it, it felt like it empowered me uh, until I recognized how toxic it was. Uh, and I stayed in for eight years until I was 23. Uh, and I think every day that I was in, I had questions about what I was involved in, but it became increasingly hard to leave because I was afraid of going back to the nothingness that I had at 14. Uh, and I can say, had a coach, uh, you know, a ballerina troupe, anybody else walked up to me in that alley at 14 years old, I would have gone with them. It just, 
didn't happen. I would have been the greatest about your dancer. ballet career. Yeah, well, <laughs> you don't want to see me dance, trust me. <laughs> well, and you, of course, did leave. Can you yeah. tell us what, what did it for you? What? Yeah, you know, I was in for eight years, and like I said, I don't think that there was a day where I didn't question what I was involved in, at least, you know, very quietly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, start, I also met people along the way that challenged me, uh, not in an aggressive way, you know, not through debate or telling me I was wrong, but just through a lived experience and, and, and getting to know them. Uh, I opened a record store uh, in 1995 to sell racist music that I was making uh, and importing. But I also sold a small section of hip-hop music and punk rock music and heavy metal music, never expecting anybody to come in to buy those things. And it was just me going into the city hall and saying, I want to open a record store, yeah. and I, can't, you know, I couldn't go in there and sell, tell them I was going to sell Nazi music. Um, and people came in to shop for it, people of color, uh, you know, people from the LGBTQ community, uh, and... It was the first time I had a meaningful interaction with the people that I'd kept outside of my social circle. And I recognized pretty quickly uh, once that happened that I actually respected them more, uh, liked them more, and wanted to be around them more than I did the people I'd surrounded myself with for eight years. Um, And eventually I became embarrassed to sell that music. I pulled it from the shelves and it was 75% of my revenue, so I had to close the store. Um, and that gave me an opportunity to really disengage from the movement. Uh, I should also say my wife and my children had left me by that point. Um, I'd been married because of, yeah, because I was involved. She, my wife, uh, we got married at 18, had our first son at 19, our second son at 21. And she never was supportive of what I was involved in. She hated it actually. Uh, and I failed to prioritize my family, uh, over the movement, even though I had this, Sitting in front of me, this identity, community, and purpose of being a father and a husband, I still didn't see it at the time. Yeah, I want to jump in there because you, you, you're going over that kind of fast. But in your, in your book, you're pointing out ICP, yeah, identity, community, and purpose. Um, not the rap band from Michigan, ICP. Not, not the insane clown posse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but talk a bit more about that because I think it really gets to the heart of how someone was able to grab you and pull you into the movement and how you're able to reach into people. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important. And I, you know, when we think about extremists or, you know, white nationalists that we hear about in the world today, we assume that they were always like that. Uh, but nobody is born a hater. They find that um, as almost like a protective armor that they put on to protect themselves from the pain that they feel inside. Then they project uh, that pain outward onto other people. But, Every single one of us is searching for identity, community, and purpose. At some point in our lives, um, we have to find that. It develops our values. It's, it's the community that we're a part of, the family. Um, so people who gravitate towards extremist movements, uh, and I talk about this in depth in my book, do so because they are searching for identity, community, and purpose, not hate. The ideology is just the final component that they find that locks into place that allows them to then blame their pain on somebody else. Um, but of course, since we all search for identity, community, and purpose, and we're not all extremists, maybe in 2020, we kind of are, but uh, that's a joke, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. Um, but I think what the differentiator is, is that it's ident- a search for identity, community, and purpose, but also uh, a broken um, search where we hit po- what I call potholes in our life's journey. Potholes are traumas. 
Uh, and trauma can be a million different things. It can be abuse, uh, it can be poverty, it can be the loss or of a loved one, grief, divorce. For me, it was abandonment. I felt abandoned by my parents. Uh, but it could also be mental illness. It can be joblessness, poverty, but even privilege can be a pothole. If privilege keeps us so isolated from humanity, uh, that can also detour us. So these potholes detour us to the fringes where these extremist narratives live, and they are a plenty there. Uh, and an extremist narrative or an extremist behavior can be anything from being a neo-Nazi to flying to Syria to join ISIS to joining a gang uh, to becoming a school shooter to even being a drug abuser. That is a manifestation of an extremist behavior. Uh, and I think ultimately a self-extremism could be suicide. Uh, instead of taking your pain out on somebody else, it's taking it out on yourself. So I think that if we start to look at why the motivations of why people engage in these extremist behaviors, we can learn how to fill those potholes so that we can bring people back. And yeah, we do share, you know, all the stories tie back into the why. Um, and, and so I'll, I'll start with you and asking you, you answered it, the why. But at any time in, in the few years that you were a part of, is it, did they call it cash? The yeah, Chicago that's area good for, yeah, Chicago area skinheads. Was yeah. Called it cash. Um, did you ever feel, did you ever feel horrible? Did hmm. compassion ever overcome the ideologies that you started believing in or, or the hate that, you know, was poisoning your mind and your, your, your heart? Yeah. I, I don't know that a day passed where I didn't feel guilty about what I was doing, but it wasn't a safe place to show that. Um, it wasn't a, a place to be vulnerable with my peers. So, you know, I suspect I wasn't the only one who stuffed those types of feelings down. Uh, and embraced the hatred even more so because there was a reward in that from our peers. Uh, you know, being violent, saying violent things was the price of admission. Uh, it was what kept us there, what feigned kind of this feeling of respect for each other, even though there was no respect. You know, we, we didn't even have self-respect. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I really think that it's a tough thing to think that people can leave those movements. I know it's hard to believe that, you know, maybe if we're nice to, you know, quote unquote, the bad people that they might change. But I can tell you, I've helped over 300 people disengage. Uh, and it really is the compassion that they receive when they least expect it from the people they least deserve it from sometimes. That is the most powerful thing that I've seen break hate. Well, let's begin with um, story number one in the mm. book, which I think speaks to a lot of the questions, at least I have, uh, as a 38-year-old queer gender nonconforming woman from Stockton, California, you know, who grew up in poverty and um, and those surrounding me gang life, and and then now doing this program here at the Commonwealth Club, trying to address some of the political challenges that we're facing. The book opens up with the story of Cassandra, um, a, a young girl from New Jersey and who gets deep into a, an internet relationship. I'm going to let you tell the story uh, because there's so much there. And, yeah. and I think you'll understand why it would capture someone at my age, if not everyone here in the room, but especially someone like myself. Yeah. Cassandra was a 17 year old girl uh, when her parents contacted me, uh, which is often the case a bystander will contact me for help. 
Um, she was a, a tw- she is a twin uh, living in New Jersey who struggled uh, with social anxiety her whole life while her sister was very social and very active. Um, there was a, a dynamic between them that was really difficult for, for Cassandra to, to get beyond. But she, in 2016, early 2016, had been recruited by an online boyfriend, uh, a man who, a 21-year-old man who said he was from Idaho, had blonde hair and blue eyes, uh, and recruited her to be a mouthpiece for propaganda. So she was, at 17 years old, making uh, Holocaust denial videos, pro-white videos online, and was getting a significant following of people. Um, and was dating this guy, and he kept kind of coercing her to, to do these things. And uh, when her parents contacted me, um, after about a month or so of my investigation, I discovered that her boyfriend wasn't a 21-year-old man from Idaho with blonde hair, blue eyes. In fact, it was two people, uh, one uh, being a, a Russian man in, in uh, St. Petersburg, um, who was 31, uh, and another one being a, a Peruvian national living not far from here in Union City, California. Uh, who were working together uh, essentially to catfish her or pretend to be somebody else and fool her into being, you know, a girlfriend. And they were recruiting other girls, some as young as 14 years old, uh, by pretending to be their boyfriends. He would steal photos online and videos and send them to her as if they were his. He would strip the audio off, record his own audio, and they both did. Um, and um, she had never seen him. Uh, and uh, when her parents contacted me, she was very deep in this. And um, I turned the information, what I also discovered as part of my investigation in October of 2016, uh, before the presidential election, was that they were tied to thousands of other uh, internet accounts, social media accounts, that were, um, you know, neo-Nazi, pro-Trump, anti-Hillary uh but they were all these fake Russian troll accounts. Uh, of course, nobody knew that back then because we weren't talking about that. So I turned over um, 22 gigabytes, a whole hard drive of information over to the FBI. Uh, the first week of November, it was before the election, and I said, I'm not exactly sure what I found, uh, but I have these thousands of accounts that are all tied to Russia. They're all pro-Nazi and you know pro-Trump and anti-Hillary, but they're not Americans doing this, and they're involved with this girl, uh, I think that there, we have a problem here because I also was tracking these accounts and discovered that they were changing from these pro-Trump, pro-Nazi accounts to then Black Lives Matter accounts. And then they would become feminist accounts. And then they became LGBT accounts. And then they became, you know, something else. And the goal was that they were just flooding the internet against all these other kinds of accounts that they were creating and pulling in real Americans as part of this debate. So you didn't realize at the time you literally had stumbled across, well, not literally, but you had stumbled across what was probably literally the biggest story of the century. Yeah, because about three months later, the FBI and the CIA came out and said, hey, we've discovered a, a Russian meddling or collusion or influencing on social media, yeah. you know, through companies like Facebook and whatnot. I wish the FBI would have done that because they never contacted me back after uh, after uh, I turned over that information. I think that they thought I was a little crazy coming in off the street with that info, but it proved to be accurate and had it. I also actually sent uh, an email that week to the Hillary Clinton campaign with that information, and, and uh, they asked for more information. I gave it to them, and they also didn't reply. I assume they at least sent you a request for funds. <laughs> That's what campaigns do. 
I wish I could tell you that was the truth. Uh, but in, instead, um, what happened was around that time, uh, former organization, nonprofit that I was uh, leading and had co-founded mm-hmm. uh, under the Obama administration had won a grant for $400,000 uh, to focus on combating white supremacy online. Uh, patiently waited for the money, and then the administration changed, and that $400,000 grant was rescinded. Um, there were 33 groups that had won as part of this grant. Um, we were the only group focused on white supremacy. Everybody else was focused on you know, what they call radical Islam, uh, and we were the only group that was rescinded. We weren't really given a reason. But wait, what, 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 did the reason, what was the reason that they give you in, in, in pretty much canceling this grant that you thought you were going to get? A tweet? Well, no. <laughs> well, the tweet is something else. Uh, what I had gotten was an email from the administrator, somebody I didn't know, who said, I'm sorry, but uh, we've re-reviewed all the grant winners and we've uh, deemed that your organization doesn't qualify. Um, it was uh, at the, around the same time I had tweeted something to the president that was probably not great. Uh, it showed my feelings about the situation. Uh, and uh, as actually the day the Muslim ban, he announced the Muslim ban that he was going to put that in. And, you know, I think I said F you something. Um, uh, and uh, they tried after the fact, actually, Katie Gorka, who was the head of the NSC at the time, her emails had leaked. They had denied us the grant first, and then they went back and said, hey, let's go find information on this group uh, for us to justify taking this away. And they found that tweet uh, after the fact. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, uh... Well, there's something important to that in losing you know, that grant, the work that you would have done, yeah. which was, um, you know, it had a lot to do with focusing on uh, internet and a framework around protecting young people from getting sucked into this kind of abuse. You know, the uh, Anti-Defamation League cite around a 30 to 35% increase of extremist uh, violence or extremist-related violence. The Southern Poverty Law Center also cite around the same amount or same percentage of increase in the year 2017 and uh, through 2018. And so there's something to be said about the rise of extremist-related murders and violence, uh, especially during, you know, this um, administration. I hate to, to correlate it all sure. and point fingers, but I'd love for you, you know, to, to kind of talk about your thoughts on the Internet's impact and on the rise of extremist activities and white supremacist propaganda. Sure. Yeah, well, I grew up when I was involved in the movement in the era before the Internet, so I had to literally be standing in an alley. Somebody had to approach me, hand me a flyer, a book, invite me to a meeting, something of that nature. Um, and I was, you know, this alienated, uh, you know, delinquent kid at that point. Um, unfortunately, now we have millions of alienated young people who live online, uh, where their only reality is virtual reality. Uh, their only connections to other people are, are, you know, people in forums and chat rooms and things like that. And we have these millions of kind of alienated young people who are being drawn to these narratives. But, of course, it's also being aided by propaganda that's coming in from the United States, from, you know, outside the United States, foreign actors. Um, and they are finding their sense of identity, community, and purpose online. Uh, and frankly, they can be whoever they want on the Internet. Uh, it doesn't have to jive with their reality. They can be whatever persona they want. Uh, and unfortunately, though, it is spilling out into the real world. People are dying at a clip level like I've never seen before attributed to this movement. Uh, and But there's also a, t- a whole transnational 
component of this movement that I think most people aren't aware of. We think, you know, oh, this is an American problem, and certainly it existed long before, you know, the president that we have in office. Uh, although, you know, I have to say that never in my lifetime, or never that I, th- that I think in my lifetime, that what I said 30 years ago would be coming out of the Twitter feed or the mouth of, of the person in the highest office. And that, to me, is very scary because it really does embolden these people. They do feel like somebody has their back. Uh, and I should say that grant that we lost was completely focused on online de-radicalization. We were ready to launch an online de-radicalization network because that's where most people are being radicalized on the internet. And the grant was pulled about four weeks before the Charlottesville uh, event happened. So I don't, you know, we could have ramped up. We could have been there potentially to help some of the people that went to that rally. You know, and in, in kind of getting back to the story of Cassandra and, and, you're with her through, with that story throughout, throughout the book. You, you keep going back to it as you're sharing other stories as well. But the thought that came to me was, and I was talking to Michelle about this before the program, I was reminded of things you'd read about the 1970s with cults. Sure. And there was quite a number of years there where people didn't really buy the idea that there were cults, that you could do mind control of people, that you could, that you, you know, I mean, nowadays, of course, We've all heard about a lot of it. Maybe we know people who have been through it, but and we're all familiar with the idea of deprogramming. But it was a lot of the same thing where finding something to catch a vulnerable person, often a young person, disaffected, alienated, alone, hurting in some way, and providing the community and, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, this gets to, I guess, kind of the big issue of all this stuff that you've been involved in, all the people you've helped and all the people you've seen maybe you couldn't help, are you optimistic that we'll get over this or is this tide still rising? I think the tide is still rising uh, and I think we need to be very careful. You know, we're still having a debate in our country on whether we have a problem with white nationalism. Uh, there are certain people who think it's a hoax, this is just a fringe thing, and you know that it's being blown out of proportion. I can tell you it's not. I get requests every day, sometimes multiple requests a day, uh, from parents, from people who are involved in these movements. Never in my life have I gotten requests about 10-year-old kids who are denying the Holocaust. I am getting that now. Um, you know, we've seen a rise in violence. Uh, we've seen, you know, a rise in, in propaganda distribution on college campuses. They know where to go to find people who are searching. Uh, I call them marginalized seekers. Uh, they know exactly where to go to find them. Uh, and they know which narratives of, of loss to pitch. Uh, and they're being, frankly, very effective while we're still debating if there's a problem. Yeah. Uh, but there's a whole transnational component uh, that, you know, those... That network has been forged for decades. People like David Duke in the early 90s, uh, you know, got rid of his Klan robe, put on a three-piece suit of a politician, was elected. There's this whole boots-to-suits transition, but he actually lived in Moscow from 1999 to 2003 or 2004. Most people don't know that. And after he left, he subletted his apartment to another American white supremacist. They've been building these alliances for a long time. And now small... uh, terror cells, groups like Adam Waffen Division, we've heard in the news lately with some arrests and a group called The Base, which is, they call themselves The Base, and if you don't know, that's a literal translation for Al-Qaeda. There's this whole white jihad component where they're starting to take the tactics that they see uh, from other terrorist groups and starting to mimic them here in terms of how they 
kill. They drive their cars, uh, small groups, you know, it's the, the propaganda, the videos, paramilitary training, it's very similar. Uh, and I think we need to be very careful of that. There's this narrative, especially in a mainstream media, after a violent incident in which um, mental illness is cited for the reasons why. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in your book, you tell stories of Cassandra, even Ben. Cassandra suffers from um, autistic spectrum disorder. Mm-hmm. And Ben, who suffers from PTSD after serving two tours mm-hmm. uh, to Afghanistan. And I think that, you know, there's, 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 I think it's a little dangerous to have these false equivalencies to kind of point fingers to mental illness. Sure. I'd love to hear your thoughts on yeah. uh, the dangers of that. Yeah, mental illness is not making people racist. Let's just make that clear. Uh, it is the circumstances that surround mental illness, often the alienation, the disconnection uh, you know, from society, whether it's social anxiety, the bullying, uh, the inability to establish really intimate relationships with friends and things like that. That push people to the fringes where those narratives exist. Uh, about, I'd say about 75% of the people that I work with are dealing with some sort of an emotional disorder. Um, you know, everything from depression to autism to bipolar to schizophrenia in some cases. Um, and I can tell you that there are lots of people who suffer from mental illness who don't become extremists. Uh, so I think we need to break that equivalence, that equiv- you know, equivocating both of those because it's not true. Same thing goes for video games. A lot of recruitment is happening on multiplayer online video games. It's not the video games that are making people violent, in my opinion. It's the recruiters who are talking to our kids over headsets from who knows where in the world, uh, who are, you know, kind of taking them from a Call of Duty scenario where they're playing with 15 people, saying something like the N-word, gauging how people respond to that. Some people will push back. Some people uh, won't say anything. Some people will giggle. And sometimes that giggle is from a nervous nine-year-old who doesn't know what else to do when the N-word is said. Uh, And they invite those people who respond positively to a smaller group, and it kind of ramps up from there. Uh, So, you know, I think what we need to understand is we are failing young people right now. we have a human infrastructure problem in our country. Our bridges and roads are falling apart, but I think we are letting down our people as well, especially young people. And I think some of the best things that we can do to counter extremism is to offer early adolescent mental health care, health care in general, education, things like that, to make sure that people are set up with opportunities. But we also have to become pothole fillers. And as adults, we have to learn to be vulnerable with our children. Uh, because they see us, whether they'll admit it or not, they see us as perfect, as superheroes that they have to somehow impress, live up to. Uh, and if we're not vulnerable with them, they will never learn to be vulnerable with us and explain to us what they might be struggling with. And I think we need to, to really build that. We, we see a lot of news stories, again, with a technological angle, uh, talking about how young people are increasingly communicating mostly through uh, social media and that they are feeling more lonely than any other generation Mm. and are spending more time alone than any other generation, not out of desire to be alone, but because that human infrastructure is just not there. Right. Um, Maybe this, this almost is a repeat of my, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Because it's like, well, how do there's the individual work you're doing Mm -hmm. and 300 people is great, but, what needs to be done to reach these millions and millions of kids who are, I mean, can't, can, can yeah. 
we can do it. You absolutely. I'm hopeful. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, th- what I do is not rocket science. Uh, I'm a guide. I'm a flagger on that road with all the potholes uh, on that search for identity, community, and purpose. And all I'm doing is guiding people to a more positive identity, community, and purpose and ways to fix their potholes. We can all do that. Um, you know, I, in my book, I actually list the seven steps of, of what it takes to disengage somebody, and none of them require any knowledge of the ideology, right? In fact, don't talk about the ideology. Don't ever debate. I don't even tell people that they're wrong. It starts out with listening. I listen for their potholes. And sometimes they don't even know they're telling me. Sometimes, uh, you know, words can't even say it, and I have to just infer it. Uh, but ultimately, it's about figuring out what the motivations are that led somebody there and trying to repair that and offering, you know, a positive sense of identity, community, and purpose, something that we all search for. One thing you bring up in the book is you talk about, you know, the evolution and, and, and what white nationalism looks like today and how it's changed over yeah. 30 plus years, um, since you've left it. And, um, we touched a little bit about kind of where it's at today in the internet. And we hear these words like alt left, alt right. Mm. I would love to hear your thoughts on what alt right means to you. And, uh, is that a part of the movement? I mean, you know, nowadays it's wrapped in, in, in different buzzwords like being patriotic, exactly. Right. Mm. Or, uh, we're exercising freedom of speech. We don't, we don't hate anyone. We're just pro white. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> were you reading my mind at 15 years old? Because those were the things that I was saying then. It hasn't changed very much, hmm. actually. Uh, you know, I don't like to use the terms alt-right or even white nationalism because I know that those are their marketing terms. They actually hmm. sat in a room and said, okay, what can we call ourselves to seem less Nazi? Uh, <laughs> it's true. I mean, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, we knew we were white supremacists. We wanted to scorch the earth. But we marketed ourselves as a white pride group uh, because we knew we had to do that to attract people. If we were too extreme, too edgy, we would alienate the average white American racist who we wanted to recruit because they were patriotic in some cases, you know, waving the American flag while we were waving swastika flags. The two didn't really mix. Uh, so in the 80s, you know, movement leaders decided to to really encourage a whole concept of leaderless resistance. Um, which is essentially the lone wolf concept. Don't join a group. Don't get tattoos. Don't shave your head. Don't look like a, you know, a white supremacist. Don't use the same words. We even stopped saying like, you know, the evil Jews and started saying, you know, the global elites or, you know, globalists in some cases, because it was a way for us to communicate through dog whistles. Uh, and then people picked up on it. You know, sometimes average Americans have picked up on it. Uh, but the whole idea was that we didn't want to alienate our potential recruiting pool. So we needed to look like them, sound like them. So when I say boots to suits, and David Duke kind of getting rid of the Klan robe and, and getting elected to the House of Representatives in Louisiana, that really was the beginning of this normalization of, you know, uh, of what I used to be, uh, which people recognized as extreme. Uh, the point was to be extreme, to make people afraid, but now it's to fool people. Okay, I really want to take it up with the person who came up with the, the modern look, the tiki torch, the polo, and the khakis. Like, who, who came up with that? Vladimir Putin. <laughs> 
I'm not joking. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it was him specifically, but if we look back even to like 2012, we see the exact same tiki torches in places like Ukraine during the Orange Revolution and the Ma- at the Maidan. Uh, we see the exact same imagery in other parts of Eastern Europe. Uh, this was a transplanted plan. Uh, and in fact, many of the people, not many, but some of the people who were instrumental in the violence in Charlottesville had actually trained in paramilitary camps in Ukraine with a group called the Azov Battalion, which started off as a neo-Nazi militia, very small militia, um, that then got folded into the National Guard of Ukraine and is a very important part of the fight in Crimea. Uh, and Ukraine is such an important geography for the world and for Europe because it is if anybody's seen the movie 300, uh, the 300 Spartans kind of held off, uh, you know, like millions of, of other people who were invading. Ukraine is very much like that for Europe. Uh, Russia really wants to destroy kind of democracy and, and the West. So that would be their entree in. So it's, a, it's kind of a really interesting thing because we have these neo very open neo-Nazis fighting uh, for Ukraine's freedom, but they're also being funded and kind of promoted by Russian propaganda and things like that. It's a really dangerous thing. Here in the United, in fact, your book, you start off with kind of a, if you will, a, a brief history of racism in America. I mean, talking about going from the institution of slavery that was abolished, then it kind of is recreated in Jim Crow. That was a legal system that could be attacked legally. But in both cases, the people who were supporting, uh, enforcing, uh, and brutalizing were doing it with the goal of having control over someone else. We were talking in the back about how this younger generation, they're, they're, the the it's almost like the violence itself is just the goal. Talk a bit about them. What what do they want? You know, it's chaos, I think, is the goal. Uh, extremism really flourishes in times of uncertainty. And right now, America is kind of a tinderbox of uncertainty. Actually, the world is kind of a tinderbox of uncertainty, uh, where I think the fires of extremism are primed to ignite. Um, and, you know, if you've got a, millions of uncertain young people about their future, about politics, about, you know, jobs, things like that, the middle class is disappearing. Like, that's a big deal, right? That's a lot of people feeling lost that they're interpreting as oppression. You know, somebody else is rising. Women are, are finally being heard. Uh, you know, LGBTQ folks are finally being heard. Well, the people who held that power, even though things are just equalizing, and they're not losing anything, they feel like it's oppressive to them. So to that, you know, you hear about this, you know, they will not replace us or the Jews will not replace us. It's that whole idea of them thinking that they're losing power. And, uh, you know, we're living in a time when if we're not very careful right now about young people and just about ourselves in general and how we react to losing truth right now, which I think once we lose it, we're going to have a hard time recognizing it again to get it back. So we need to be very careful with that. We are in a moment right now that is very dangerous, not just for the United States, but for the whole world uh, that is facing this dire uncertainty. I want to go back to Cassandra's story again. Um, and it just, I, I mean, yeah. gosh, if anything, go out there, grab a book, and then, you know, skim through. And just to hear, like, how hard it was and how challenging it was for you to... Uh, take the situation and be supportive of Cassandra's parents who, yeah. you know, really felt like there was nothing that they could do and they really wanted to help um, their child, of course. 
But you went as far as tracking this guy down and you were here at mm-hmm. Union City. Yeah. Actually, you found the guy's house and, you know, going through all this de- I mean, how, detective work. <laughs> I think, I think. I don't, we don't all have that kind of time, um, and also that kind of talent that you have to address these situations. If any of our, our children are involved in these types of, um, scandal, yeah. which I don't think is slowing down. I think yeah. it's, we're in another election year and I'm afraid that these practices online, um, the meddling in the election, the, the lying, uh, the other person on the other side with a different motive, yeah. especially to to divide us here in this country. It's it's the, it's here. It's it's happening right now as we speak. Yeah. Well, Cassandra was abducted uh, by the man from Union City, uh, and I was the only one that knew where he lived. Uh, even though I had passed that information to the FBI before she was abducted and warned them that it was happening, it was going to happen because he was threatening it. Uh, he eventually did abduct her the week she turned 18 years old and went off to college. Uh, and I had to come to Union City and find her, uh, and bring her home. Um, and it was, of course, with the help of local police and her family and everything like that. Um, but I couldn't even describe it to the local police because they wouldn't have believed me in a million years had I, had I told them that. Um, I, I'm not a detective. Uh, you know, I had to teach myself how to find information. Um, and I, I would encourage if you have children and you're a parent, be involved, uh, know how to look for things, know how to look for signs. And people ask me all the time, like, what are, what should we look for if my kid is becoming an extremist? The same thing you would look for if your kid is getting into drugs or becoming a delinquent. Like, are they depressed? Have they changed their habits? Uh, have they abandoned the things that they love for something completely new? It's all the things that we've been taught to look for. You know, if our kid is getting into trouble for, you know, decades and decades and decades, it's the same thing. It is, the ideology is just the final component. So we don't, I don't battle it through an ideological process. I battle it through really a public health approach. I'm trying to empower and, and, you know, build resilience in people, uh, to bring them back. And I think to prevent this from happening, we need to do that proactively. We need to, to make sure that our young people are resilient, but we're also suffering too. I mean, it's not just young people, it's adults too. Mm. Um, we really, we need to, and somebody brought up something really interesting to me yesterday, you know, and they were talking about their parents and they weren't aging very gracefully. And they said, you know, it's just like your book. It's like they've lost their sense of identity, community, and purpose as they've gotten older. Their friends have died. They don't know, you know, they've moved into like kind of a new neighborhood and retirement neighborhood and and they're not active. They're not doing it. I said, well, that's kind of the same thing that a young person goes through. Um, So, you know, maybe if we want to age gracefully, we need to always be vigilant about making sure we have positive identity, community, and purpose. The second follow-up to that is in 2016, I mean, you were so desperate to get law enforcement to help and they kind of did, but I mean, even when there was the standoff where you were at the guy's house and you were trying to um, ask him to get out of the car. By this point, Cassandra's at the airport with her mom, uh, but you were there to retrieve their things. You're telling them, you know, he's a criminal. He's involved in this big thing. Yeah. And, and, uh, there wasn't much that they can do if he wasn't going to get out of the car. But I just want to stress that there was only so much that law enforcement was willing to do. Yeah. You even wrote to a Clinton staffer, um, and they didn't respond. You went to the FBI. They haven't responded to you till this day. 
that was 2016. We're now in 2020, another election year. And I bring this up because if you were to submit another case similar to Cassandra's today, Mm -hmm. do you think that the FBI uh, or law enforcement or any political candidate would listen to you? I think it is different now. Yeah. Uh, I actually had uh, the real privilege to testify uh, before the House of Representatives um, and talk about this very specific problem that we're having. Um, I have developed a better relationship with the FBI. They're still not willing to look at that case for whatever reason. Uh, but there are other things that I've worked with them on. You know, I, People see me as a conduit in some cases. Even people that I'm not helping disengage, they'll say, hey, you know, I found this person online. They're saying really awful things. It sounds like they're going to be violent. They've threatened violence. And they'll send it to me. And I will contact the FBI as my duty as, you know, an American to protect other people. Um, and they have responded. So, I, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm okay saying that there have been at least a dozen potential mass shootings that because of the information that was sent to me and I got uh, to law enforcement that have been, you know, thwarted. Because of that, so. Uh, so for anyone listening or watching who frankly might be interested in contacting you, yeah. do you have a contact you could share that you'd feel okay sharing? In? I'm easy to find. Just Google X skinhead Christian, you know, in Chicago. I usually come up towards the top, but uh, yeah, it's very easy to contact me. I'm on social media. If you just Google my name, it should come up pretty easily. We're going to open it up to the audience uh, for questions for Christian in just a little bit. Um, I'm going to ask this question before you do, but uh, be prepared with your questions. John's going to walk around with a roving mic. And again, it's being recorded, so speaking to the mic. Um, there was an incident, Dylan Roof, who walked into a, an African-American church and killed nine individuals. It's still a very, very hard, you know, uh, incident to talk about. Uh, But what's heartbreaking to add to that is that um, you later find out that music that influenced Dylan Roof included music that you created over 25 years ago when you were in the movement. And um, and I, I have a lot of a lot of empathy for you and at the same time confused and, and then add to that what led us here today is just why, like, why, why are we doing this? Why are, why are people so angry? Why are people so hateful? But the question is, you know, how do you reconcile that and continue moving forward? And then, you know, John, part of John's question is, is the hope. Yeah. Um, that was, you know, not only, devastating to that community and certainly to the victims and their families. Uh, but it was a, it was a moment that I'll never forget. Uh, it really was kind of the, the tide shifting, I think, at least in our understanding of, of where this was moving. Um, and I think it was maybe last year when I first found out, but um, I was doing an interview with a journalist and she showed me a printout of a posting that Dylan Roof had made in, in a white supremacist message board. Um, and in that posting, he had just watched a documentary about skinheads and, uh, he had heard some music, uh, and seen a band perform in that documentary and he had posted the lyrics to this website. And, uh, the journalist showed me this printout. I don't think she knew what she was showing me at the time. Um, but I had to read it three times, uh, because they were very familiar. And third time I recognized they were my lyrics that I had written, uh, 30 years before. Um, and 
had influenced him, you know, just a few months before he walked into the Mother Emanuel Church and, and murdered nine people. Um, and to think that I, that, you know, I said something 30 years ago that would have influenced somebody to do that made me physically ill. It, uh, it was several days before I didn't feel physically ill. Uh, and this is music that I've tried to remove that I still cannot scrub from the internet for whatever reason. Um, and I have a responsibility for that, for, for the ideas that I put out into the world, the music that is still out there, uh, and how that's influencing people. And that's part of what drives me to continue to do this work for the last 24 years. Uh, but also every day I'm driven by the fact that I must repair the damage that I've caused. I don't know what that even means, but I'm driven by that idea. And sometimes I do that by informing people. Sometimes I do that by going into the communities that I've hurt. Sometimes it means, you know, making amends with the actual individual individuals that I hurt in some way. Uh, and it's something that I don't think I'll ever be done doing, nor do I want to be done. I mean, I certainly hope that, you know, this problem goes away. I want to be out of work. Trust me. I don't want to help people disengage. I hope we get rid of this problem. But I also know that personally, my mission is to always repair the harm that I've caused and to encourage other people to do that as well. Does religion play a role in your life? You know, I went to Catholic schools my whole life. Um, and then I think two of the six high schools I went to, all of them I got kicked out of once, one of them twice. Um, were, uh, so I grew up in a you know, very Roman Catholic Italian family. Uh, I would consider myself an agnostic now, but here's my, here's my take on God. Um, I think we are all like cells in God's body. And when we're sick and can't communicate with each other, the whole body's sick. So we need to learn to, to understand we are all part of that same body. Uh, and, and we need to be better towards each other because if we're toxic, the body dies. And whether that means it's God or society or whatever, um, we must do a better job at that. So that's my take. This may not be the most profound question, but it's ever since I first came across you, which I think was in an NPR interview, I bought your book romantic violence. Mm. But I, I have to say, I mean, I never thought an Italian-American, especially one named Christian Picciolini, would be mm -hmm. white enough yeah. to be recruited by white supremacists. I mean, you know, we're whitish, kind of like, you know, the <laughs> comedy comedian who is blackish. I loved when he came out with blackish because I always felt whitish, yeah. but I would never imagine. So what is white supremacy today? If Italians fit into white supremacy, who else does that we don't expect to be? That's a good question. Um, and I think speaking from their perspective and what they believe, they really believe in kind of European heritage. So if you're of European heritage, they would consider that white. Uh, but exactly what is white, right? Uh, it changes. And once people get folded into the power structure, then all of a sudden it's their turn to kind of, you know, poo poo the people that come behind them, right? White supremacy is this false notion that white people are superior to everybody else. And that's what they believe. Uh, I can tell you from experience that the white supremacists I've met are not superior than anybody. <laughs> that's not to say they're not smart. That's not to say, you know, there aren't people who've had, you know, educations from prestigious universities. But I have to be honest, when I hear, you know, somebody like Richard Spencer speak, who has those prestigious degrees from universities, he sounds dumber than I did at 14, to be quite <laughs> honest. Um, so... You know, we shouldn't think that they're stupid. 
because they are, uh, in some cases, smart. But yeah, I mean, what is white, right? So that what I would say to them is they really need to examine their, themselves because maybe at one point they weren't part of this exactly. power structure and were folded exactly. in. I mean, there was an article recently, I think, from the New York Times about how Italians became white. Sure. When Italians became white. Or yeah. Something like that. And I won a few years back about similar about Jewish, Jewish and uh, Irish and other nationalities. I mean, we people who weren't always white. Yeah. You know, they kind of become white. So I'm like, how has it changed? Yeah, I mean, it, it, people who are in power, essentially, you know, they want to keep that power. Um, but yeah, no, it's a false notion. And, and frankly, what's so important is, is about enlisting the people harmed along the way. And I wanted to say that earlier to your question, is we must enlist the people harmed along the way to fix our nation's potholes so that they can help us develop what the future is, right? Societies, nations can also have potholes and a struggle for identity, community, and purpose. And let me tell you, we have some historic potholes that we have never focused on, uh, and we must. The You talked about Russian trolls wanting to destabilize um, America by creating all these different uh, groups that fight against each other. Um, and okay, yeah, I can see how that breeds chaos. But like, what is to be accomplished by like playing video games with little Jimmy who's nine years old and has no money and can't vote and might not have access to a gun? Is it playing a really long game that hopefully he turns 15 and has access to a gun? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, they know that. to just like. Well, guns are pretty easy to get in our country for a 15 year old even. Um, that's, they understand that, right? Um, and I think what they want to do is create more of that uncertainty because they know that in times of uncertainty, chaos flourishes, extremism flourishes, and a percentage of those people, a small percentage even, will find a gun, walk into their school, walk into, you know, a store and murder people. Their, their goal really is to disrupt. So when we talk about like influence and, you know, they're not, I don't think that they're changing votes like on election form, at least that I'm aware of. But what they are doing is influencing us. They are meddling with our opinions, right? In some cases, it's about fake news and giving us opinions that they want us to have that don't really exist in reality. Uh, but in most cases, they know what America's open wounds are. Racism, right? The fact that we have a lot of guns and people die all the time because of them. And their goal, uh, so we talked about just very briefly, Adam Waffen Division earlier, which is like this terrorist group in the truest sense of the word that is Americans, white supremacists killing people. Well, I've worked with people from Adam Waffen Division. I've helped them disengage. And they've told me, you know, I get sent guns piece by piece from somebody in the Ukraine. I've actually been to the Ukraine and, and, and trained in a paramilitary camp. The person that I talked to on a video game, his name, you know, was... Uh, Igor, you know, something. And, and I didn't find that out until after he told me his name was John Smith. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it, there are a lot of elements at play here. Uh, and it is really just about creating so much disruption in our country that we can't even decide what to do amongst ourselves, which I'm sorry is the case right now. We can't get anything done because of this. Hey, Christian, um, I'm a retired police officer and I was just wondering, have you had any success thinking about reaching out to law enforcement community with this message other than, you know, we're, we're kept abreast of who's active, but educating 
these young officers is a different thing. Have you thought about that? Absolutely. And I do a lot of that work. I have a wonderful relationship uh, with law enforcement. I do try and, and educate them on this world because I think they're, you know, listen, their job is hard. Uh, they don't understand in certain cases, the nuances of some of these groups or what's happening overseas and how it's influencing here. So I think it's very, very important that they understand. I think more than, you know, anybody else, law enforcement, teachers, psychologists, uh, anybody dealing with young people really needs to understand what's happening. So yes, absolutely. I do a lot of speaking. Uh, actually, at one point, I even helped the FBI uh, as a contractor develop kind of an intervention program that they never ended up using. They were the wrong entity to, to do kind of touchy-feely intervention work, I think, at the time. But uh, listen, you know, this is something that is not just, I'm not just about being, uh, you know, uh, an exit for white nationalists. We need to do this for all young people in our country. Offer, make sure that even the most marginalized, uh, you know, communities of color and things like that have access to opportunity, are empowered, and that we help them around their potholes. Because I think this isn't just a solution, you know, to defeat extremism. I think it's a it's a solution to fix our, our crumbling human infrastructure. Hi, um, my name is Anne. Thank you for coming tonight. It's been really interesting. Thank you. Um, I'm curious about how you extricated yourself from the group and the work that you're doing now, mm. it seems like it'd be almost dangerous. And I'm wondering if you've ever had to deal with threats on your life or on your family. And I guess I'm just curious what extricating yourself was like and what your life is like now, what you're doing, I would assume is kind of scary yeah. at times. Uh, yeah. Uh, thank you for that question. Um, you know, I wish I could tell you that when I left in 1996, that I told them off and, you know, I was waving my fist at them. No, I, I ran. Uh, I ran away and I tried to hide my past. Uh, and that happened for almost five years because I didn't, I was afraid to tell people. I tried, I moved, I was better. Like I, I didn't have the same beliefs and I was, you know, inclusive and, and doing all the right things, but I had run away. I tried to outrun my past by moving, making new friends, finding a new job. And even though I was good with other people, I was still dying inside. It was still killing me because I had that cancer in me. Um, and it wasn't until I actually started telling people, um, that at my, I noticed my life was getting better. I was being honest. I was con holding myself accountable for the first time, uh, which is something I do for everybody I work with. Nobody gets a free pass with me. I've held myself accountable for, for 24 years. Uh, and I do believe that people do need to repair the, the damage that they've caused. They need to work uh, not only with the victims, but their communities and everybody else to, to really self-reflect and understand why they did what they did and also to fix uh, what they did. Uh, I get death threats almost every day. Um, most of them are online. I do hundreds of these events, uh, always publicize them. Nobody's ever disrupted anything. Nobody's ever, you know, as far as I know, attended. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's here's the thing. It was... I would have been dead or in jail if I would have stayed. That was more dangerous for me. Doing the right thing now, I don't consider dangerous. It's my duty. I'm one of the few people on earth who knows things that most people don't know about how these groups work, how they recruit, um, you know, what happens, what their strategies are, what their plans are. And I see it as my responsibility to dismantle that. Christian, first, uh, thank you very much for what you do. We all appreciate it. Thank you. 
Uh, question is, uh, so obviously uh, groups like Adam Waffen, which you mentioned before, or RAM, Rise Above yeah. uh, movement are very obviously neo-Nazi movements. What Can you tell us a little about what you feel about the quote-unquote alt-right light, kind of like the Proud Boys? Yeah, I mean, so if we look at white supremacist as like the umbrella term, there are all different kinds under there, right? There are some that will say, you know, we're just alt-right. Some that say, well, we're not even that far off alt-right. We're alt-light. Uh, and then there are some groups like Adam Waffen who are, you know, no holds barred. They want to scorch the earth, and they're very happy to tell you about that. Um, but here's the common thread is they all, they are all white supremacists, right? They can name themselves what they want. They can dress differently. Uh, they can speak differently, but ultimately their goal is to marginalize and harm other people, right? So while, you know, groups like Adam Waffen are actually killing people, they've been responsible for at least five deaths in the last two years and probably more, but so many other plots have been thwarted, um, Somebody like the alt-right is just saying things in some cases and not, you know, murdering people, although they are too. They're driving their car through Charlottesville rally and, and things like that. But their words are harmful. Their ideas that they're putting into the world are harmful and do end up influencing people to kill people. So alt-light or, you know, alt-extreme or whatever we want to call them, they're all still feeding this problem. Uh, so I don't really, you know... Generally speaking, I don't differentiate between them. Um, they're all uh, guilty, as far as I'm concerned, for what they're doing. Uh, so, you know, I approach them differently because, you know, you don't, I wouldn't approach somebody wearing a suit like I would a skinhead who's part of, you know, maybe hiding and rise above movement, movement or something like that. Uh, so I recognize the differences, uh, but at the same time, I also hold them equally accountable. And maybe I don't know enough or haven't read enough, but I'm wondering... Who's the, ultimately controlling these different organizations and who's behind all of this? I mean, there must be somebody who's keeping each of the organizations going. It is much less about organization than it is about individual action. It's a, think of it as a movement without leaders where individuals feed off of each other. They encourage each other. Uh, in some cases, you know, they may come from different camps like the gentleman just mentioned. Uh, but the internet really changed everything. Uh, you know, it's kind of like a 24 hour, all you can eat hate buffet. Uh, if you're hungry, I mean, people are feeding off of each other. We've seen manifestos from, you know, people in, you know, Norway from Anders Breivik to the Christchurch shooter to El Paso are referencing each other in their manifestos. It's a game. It's become kind of like, I need to beat the high score game. And what I would warn is that they're, they're kind of what they're, what they're aiming for is Oklahoma City. You know, where 168 people were killed, including children. Um, Timothy McVeigh, most people don't know, was a white supremacist. He was, you know, seen at places like Aryan Nations and was influenced by uh, other, you know, fundamentalist religious groups like uh, the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, which was uh, a terrorist militia. Um, and uh, they really aspire to create more damage than he's done. You know, there's this whole idea of uh, what's being called accelerationism within this movement. Groups like Adam Waffen would consider themselves accelerationists. They've forgotten about the idea of like, hey, we're going to just create a white homeland. What they're now trying to do is 
accelerate things through violence to the point where there's mass chaos, where essentially the whole world is scorched and they can start over because they believe they are the ones that will survive it. Um, it's not about leaders. Yeah, no, it's not really about... There, there, there are leaders, there are figureheads and kind of ideologues, but it's not about the group structure so much. I mean, Adam Waffen's a pretty small group, maybe, you know, 100, 200 members, um, you know, lone wolf terrorists. Uh, but it's not about reporting up through a hierarchy, and I'll tell you why. Because in the 80s and 90s, law enforcement did an amazing job of infiltrating these groups. And they started to take down the leadership uh, when they did that. And leaders at that point said, hey, that's it. No more groups. We're going to promote this idea of being a lone wolf, this leaderless resistance. We'll indoctrinate you. We will all indoctrinate each other. But you're not going to report. You're not going to be a card-carrying member. You're not going to have you know, a, a director uh, that is overseeing you. It is your responsibility, your job, to go out and recruit people and send them off. It's like a pyramid scheme almost. Yeah. There are, there are influencers. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, you know, foreign adversaries like Russia are promoting these ideas. They are, in some cases, seeding these ideas. Adam Waffen Division, the original website where they started, and this is a very, very dangerous group that's killed people. The website where they started, where they started to recruit Americans, was founded by a Russian man. His name, the name he uses is Alexander Slavros. His real name is Alisher Mukditnov. Uh, and he is based right now, as we speak, in Moscow. On that website, he was recruiting people to join this. He was passing bomb-making plans. He was encouraging violence and race war and all these things. These are things that, you know, ideologues in our country are talking about, but they're also being kind of fanning the flames, you know, with other players in the movement. So it's, it's everybody is their own leader, essentially. Speaking of people who belong to marginalized groups who nevertheless are white supremacists, I'm interested in your thoughts on Stephen Miller. Because, I, yeah. I mean, this is a person in an official position yeah. who has control of funds and policies. And, uh, and yet he is a Jewish man, son of immigrants. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I just find him very baffling and very scary. And I'm wondering if, I'm just wondering if you, I'm wondering where his potholes are. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know his specific potholes, but I can tell you that if you can, if we can step away from a moment and think it's an ideological movement, even though it is, the glue is the ideology, and we think about it as a search for identity, community, and purpose. I can tell you that I have worked with black neo-Nazis. I can tell you I've worked with Latino neo-Nazis born to Latino parents in Mexican City who are here. Uh, I've worked with uh, Jewish mothers who their sons are denying the Holocaust. They've found these movements because they've been accepted into them when maybe in other cases they were not accepted into society. And that was kind of like their lottery ticket. Uh, you know, people paid attention and they were getting a reward. So they've forgotten who they are and what their, you know, history has gone through in some cases because the reward of feeling accepted is greater than, you know, the pain 
Um, so to answer, you know, your question, I, I don't, I, my opinion on, on Stephen Miller is he is doing some bad stuff and he has the power to do those bad things. Um, uh, but there are also other people, you know, there have been outright white nationalists that have been fired from the state department, you know, once they've been discovered as having a podcast or something like that. These people are, uh, I'm not trying to paint like an epidemic, but they're everywhere. There are neighbors, there are doctors, there are lawyers, there are teachers, there are military, there are police officers in some cases. They are, you know, just because the jobs are respectable doesn't necessarily mean that there are respectable people doing them in all cases. Uh, and in fact, in the 80s, we encouraged people as we were encouraging them to disassociate from, you know, groups that were very visible. We said, get a job, go to the military, get some training, become a cop run for office, be a teacher, go to where the people we want to recruit are. And that is what's happened. Hi. Um, I was wondering what is the best public response to situations like Charlottesville or Berkeley? We've had a lot of uh, white supremacist activity. Yeah. Is it ignore them? Is it um, join Antifa? Is it have a peaceful protest? Yeah. What do you see as the best, most effective response? I'll tell you that the two things that extremists love are silence and violence, right? If we are silent and we ignore them and say, oh, we'll let them do their thing and we'll just go over here, they're going to keep doing it. And we're going to continue to think that we're living in a post-racial society when we're not. You know, we I think anybody who thinks that has never spoken to a person of color about the reality of not being in a post-racial society. Um, and they love violence, which is why they go to progressive neighborhoods like Charlottesville, why they come to Berkeley, why they went to Skokie, Illinois, a predominantly Jewish neighborhood, and, and you know, uh, to, to march through there. Uh, the American Nazi Party did. Um, it is to elicit a response from us that then will allow them to attack right? Because they want to paint themselves as the victim, which is why they hide behind free speech, which is why they hide, hide behind the constitution and patriotism and all these things, because those things are hard to attack, right? Even a good argument is, is, you know, like, how do you knock somebody's patriotism? So they, it's not patriotism. I can tell you they are the least patriotic people. They want to destroy American democracy. They are anti-government. They're anti-law enforcement. They are anti our values, um, so, you know, somebody like me, it's easy to spot that when they try, you know, wave an American flag and say, we're protecting a Confederate monument. That's not what they're doing. They're going there because they know it's controversial and it will elicit a response. And they'll also be able to identify people who are not white nationalists, but are supporting what they're doing to recruit. Right. So they want to be the victims and they like to antagonize. Uh, and they, and, and sometimes we, we fall into that trap. And what I think we need to do is we need to be vocal. We need to be visible if they march and we need to be vigilant. We cannot, the best example, let me just take a step back. The best example of what I saw happen after Charlottesville to a, a white supremacist march was what happened in Boston. Uh, I think like 10 or 20,000 people from Boston came out there was no violence. There were no fights. There were no arrests. I guarantee you those white supremacists will never come back to Boston, but they will go back to Charlottesville. They will go back to Berkeley. They will come back to other places because they got the responses that they wanted there. Um, I was wondering if you could share a little with us um, some insight into your experience when you were in these gangs, what was going on in, in your head 
and in your heart, because I think that most of us are here because it's hard for us to comprehend that people actually feel this way. Um, but I think a big component of making a shift and making a change is, is understanding, you know, um, you mentioned the ICP, ICP components, which I think are important, but I'm just wondering you personally, you know, did you, at the time you were in those gangs, did it feel true for you that this was something that was important to do? Or was there part of you that sort of fought it because morally you felt it wasn't right? Was there a conflict or did you like looking back, did you feel brainwashed? I'm just curious, like some insight because we don't understand, right? Most yeah, of us yeah. can't comprehend what you've experienced. Yeah. I mean, I think at first it was confusing. I didn't understand it, but I knew that the price of admission was to be violent and to buy in. So I did. Uh, and the more I did that, the more I started to believe it, the more I was committed, the more I stopped, I stopped having doubts. Um, I always had, I always felt guilt. I always had doubts, but it was degrees of it. Like it would lessen the more I got respect, the more I got power, the more, you know, girls started to like me, the more I started to grow my influence, not just from local to then regional to then national to then international, those rewards started to mount up. So that the guilt, even though it was still there, affected me less because I was getting something and I'd forgotten what it meant to be human after a while. Um, it was kind of like, you know, a, a curve like that. Like I went to this point where I didn't, you know, I was getting the reward. But after a while, like a drug, because it is a lot like drug addiction, uh, it makes you feel good. It comforts you, makes you forget about your problems. But at the same time, you know, it's killing you and everybody around you but it's hard to stop. Um, it was like that. And after a while, I started to feel very, very guilty about it. But I also knew that it was much, much harder for me at that point to disengage and to repair the damage that I had caused. So it was very difficult to leave. I would say the last two years that I was involved, I didn't even, I wasn't even like believing in the ideology anymore, but I had to go along with the program, uh, partly because I wasn't brave enough to like tell people off and walk away and, and start over. Uh, but two, you know, it was dangerous to do that. Um, so yes, to, to answer your question shortly, I, at first I didn't believe it. I didn't understand it. Then I did very, uh, vehemently like was all in. And then when I started to, to recognize it wasn't something that was good for anybody, it was increasingly hard to leave. Uh, also because the outside world didn't want me back. And I knew that even though I had changed or I was changing. Uh, at that point, you know, and rightfully so, I had to do a lot of work to gain people's trust again. Um, and it took years to do that. Um, but it's, it's not always an easy situation for somebody who maybe has nothing before they gone in, they'd gone in and all of a sudden they're receiving respect for the first time in their lives or receiving a family or the sense of empowerment. Sometimes for the first time, it's a very addictive thing. I want to thank you all for being here tonight. Make sure you get a copy of Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism. And, of course, Christian, all the work that you do and that you continue to do. Thank you, thank you very much.